just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. It turns out, it is. It seems fairly clear that sharks don't like the taste of people and will typically leave the scene. It's summer in the Northern Hemisphere and before we take a few weeks off at Radio Davos, we thought we'd bring good news to anyone heading to the beach. Most sharks, even the sharks that cause fatalities, are not actually eating people. Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might fix them. In this episode, we look at how Hollywood has made us irrationally afraid of sharks animals that evolved before the dinosaurs that pose little threat to humans and play a big role in the ocean ecosystem which is crucial for our planet. We have to stop sharks going extinct and by doing so you know we can actually preserve the health of our oceans which are in a terrible mess at the moment for all kinds of different reasons. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating or review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum and with a summer special on sharks and on music this is the impact you can still have with music, you know, you can regreen hundreds of thousands of square meters. This is Radio Davos. She said she need more loving in the morning, she need more loving in the night. I don't know what to tell her, so I just close my eyes. Some tunes just sound like summer. And before Radio Davos goes on its holidays, we thought you'd like to hear this. I don't know what to tell her. Not only a tune... This is a song that aims to help the planet by planting trees. The more listens, the more trees. We'll be hearing from DJ Don Diablo later in the show. But first, sharks. In the summer of 1975, a young up-and-coming director called Steven Spielberg unleashed a film that terrified moviegoers around the world. Jaws is the story of a monstrous great white shark that terrorises a seaside resort and then pursues the men who set out to kill it. The movie was a huge hit, setting the template for what we now think of as the summer blockbuster. Spielberg became the hottest director in town, and Sharks became, for many people, the living embodiment of the threat to humans from nature, red in tooth and claw. But what is the truth behind the myth that Spielberg and the author of the book Jaws, Peter Benchley, created? Johnny Wood spoke to Andy Cornish. Based in Hong Kong, he's the leading shark expert at conservation group WWF, and he explained why sharks are vital to the health of the ocean and even to the climate. Johnny started by asking Andy Cornish just how deadly are sharks. There are around uh, 507 species of sharks uh, known at this time, and only 11 of those species, so that's you know less than 2% of the total are known to cause, have caused human fatalities ever. So for the other 490 or so species, um, that bad reputation uh, is entirely undeserved. I think one of the other aspects of this is that most sharks, you know, even the sharks that cause fatalities are not actually eating people. Um, people tend to die of shark bites, um, but it seems fairly clear that sharks don't like the taste of people um, and will typically uh, leave the scene um, shortly afterwards. What you're basically saying is that these shark attacks <laughs> happen by accident? There are provoked shark attacks and unprovoked shark attacks. So there are, you know, there are occasions uh, where uh, people are clearly in the way of what the shark wants to do or they're in its territory um, and there is a threat display that sharks will do where they arch their backs and they sort of pump out their fins. Um, I've had a small black tip reef shark do that to me once. Um, and I was clearly uh, in an area where, for whatever reason, it didn't want me there. So um, sharks will attack and they will bite um, in those circumstances. But generally, it's a case of mistaken identity. Uh, and 
you know, the, the shark that is, is thought to uh, be responsible for the most fatalities is the bull shark. Uh, and the bull shark has a nasty habit of going uh, up rivers, uh, far away from the coast, uh, into areas where people just would not expect to be sharks because these are purely freshwater environments. You know, what they're doing is they're surprising their prey in, in waters of very low visibility, you know, whether it's fish or mammals, you know, or people who happen to be swimming you know, in that area. And um, that seems to be the reason for most for shark fatalities and, and certainly not, I mean, the most extreme end of these sort of Jaws films, you know, the, the, the shark is actually tracking the person to go and bite it. I mean, that just couldn't be further from reality. But it makes good cinema. Well, apparently it does, because there's yet another one coming out. I saw, I saw in the uh, in our equivalent of the tube yesterday, there's another one coming out called Great White, which has the, the normal cliched picture of a, of a massive shark about to attack somebody. So that would never happen? A shark would never deliberately attack a human? I don't think we can say that. I mean, I think we can say that definitely sharks don't deliberately attack people to eat them. Um, occasionally they will give, you know, they'll give a bite, uh, either as a, because the threat was ignored or because they're hungry and they're not sure whether humans are edible, so they'll take a bite. The vast majority of the time they'll decide that's not something they want to eat and they'll leave, but you know, in some cases that bite may have been fatal. How many shark-related human deaths actually occur each year? Whenever I'm asked about the number of uh, shark-related deaths, I think people are always surprised um, about how low they are, particularly compared to other predators. So. For example, uh, lions and tigers kill about 100 people annually each. Uh, hippos, about 500 people. Crocodiles, 1,000 people. Um, but the, the vast majority uh, are actually people killed by snakes. Uh, the estimates of numbers of people killed by snakes vary wildly, but certainly 20,000 to 50,000 people killed per year by snakes. Uh, it seems entirely plausible. So the figure, by comparison for sharks, uh, is six individuals. So not 6,000, not 600, not 60, um, but just six. So that's hardly the perception you get from the media where even a shark sighting um, can make front page news. I and mean, I can't remember the last time I saw an article about people dying of snake bites. Does that perception of the shark as a person killer, do you think that purely comes from cinema films like Jaws? It is, and it's, you know, it is continued uh, media hype. I think the original Jaws did do a lot of damage and that the author Peter Benchley acknowledged later on in life the damage that had done to the reputation of sharks and therefore attempts to, to conserve them. I think it's done a great deal of damage. And I think the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction to that is that um, people care less about shark conservation because they they probably think that you know less sharks in the ocean of those kind of sharks is, is probably a good thing for them personally. Why should I care about sharks and, and why are they important to the health of ocean ecosystems? Firstly, they evolved around 400 million years ago. All right, so these are ancient creatures. Um, they actually can have outlived the dinosaurs. Uh, there are 500 plus species and they play many key roles uh, in marine ecosystem. Uh, they're also, uh, before the, the advent of fishing, um, they were common, uh, you know, in pretty much all tropical or, or temperate oceans and seas. Um, and because there's so many species and they're all pretty much predators um, and because they're common, I mean, they certainly, they don't just dwell in the ocean. Um, sharks really help shape, shape it. Um, some, and some specific examples of that, I mean, many of these 500 species, we've got no idea really about exactly what the, the role they're playing. Um, but we know for oceanic sharks and rays, so these are the sharks and rays further offshore, um, that they help to mix the layers of the ocean. So 
the, the upper surface, the topmost 100 meters of the, of the oceans is the most productive um, because that's where we have the most sunlight. Um, and that's where we, of course, the, the, the phytoplankton that are really the engines um, of the uh, marine ecosystems where they really thrive. But actually those shallow waters are quite nutrient poor. Um, so animals like whales, but also sharks and rays um, that undertake vertical migration. So going down into deeper waters, um, you know, several hundred meters to a thousand meters to actually feed on animals down there. Um, when they come back up to the surface uh, and they excrete, that's actually bringing nutrients uh, effectively from deeper waters up in, upper into, uh, into shallower waters. So they're helping to provide nutrients into that um, productive surface layer. Uh, and the other thing that the larger animals do um, is they help the mixing of the layers. So as you get deeper and deeper into the, uh, into the ocean, the uh, amount of oxygen uh, declines. Uh, and scientists have found that the that most productive layer, uh, the top 100 meters, is actually shrinking. So the, the, the productiv productivity of the oceans will correspondingly um, decline. So when these animals are, are traveling up and down through, because they have a wake behind them, and think about something like a... a you know, a really large whale shark or a manta rays, um, they're, they're both dragging up um, water from the deeper layers that has nutrients, um, but when they dive down, they're actually helping to sort of oxygenate um, the upper upper layers of water by dragging that oxygen water down. And there's quite a lot of um, uh, the oceanic species uh, that actually undertake these vertical migrations. How do sharks contribute to carbon sequestration? So research in Australia um, basically showed how tiger sharks are helping to mitigate climate change. So uh, in a particular bay, the sort of tiger, these large tiger sharks are actually feeding on dugongs or sea cows and turtles. The sea cows and the turtles are feeding on seagrass. And what they found is that if tiger sharks are not present, the turtles and the sea cows can actually overgraze uh, the seagrass. Versus if a tiger shark is present, because the tiger sharks will feed on, on those animals, there's a, there's a fear factor that keeps the, the dugongs and the turtles moving around more. So that reduces the over-harvesting of the seagrass. These seagrass beds are actually even more efficient at sequestering carbon than rainforests. Let's move on to the threats that shark populations face and you know, how serious these challenges are. The main threats to uh, sharks are overfishing, overfishing and overfishing. It's estimated that around 100 million sharks are caught every year uh, and they're mostly in fisheries with little or no management um, which is how the overfishing is occurring. Um, even basic sort of catch limits for fisheries that take sharks are rare outside a handful of countries such as Australia and the US. Uh, and these, this threat is getting more and more serious all the time. And, uh, you know, the numbers of species um, that have had severe population declines and are even facing extinction uh, is just going up and up every year. Unfortunately, now we're seeing that 36% of all the shark and ray species are threatened with extinction. Uh, and at the most serious end of that, so species that are critically endangered, um, the numbers of species that are critically endangered has gone up from 25 in 2014 to 76. Well, tragically, really, in the, in the last 12 months, uh, the first shark has been declared probably extinct and the first species of ray has been declared probably extinct as well. Could you give me some practical measures that fisheries and marine management can adopt that would help. The flip side of having only one threat is that if we can reduce that threat, the shark populations will be able to recover. So 
Clearly, the biggest thing we need to do is reduce fishing pressure and we need to reduce overfishing. So the, the most important ways that we have to reduce overfishing is firstly to put catch limits for those species that are still caught in reasonable numbers. For the species that are, are more endangered, we need to be putting them on protected species lists. We need to be protecting their critical habitats and we need to be finding ways that common fishing gears can catch the target species, um, but catch less sharks and rays. But an interesting recent development is using lights uh, on gill nets to reduce their catch. So this was something that was developed for marine turtles, which also get caught in gill nets unintentionally. If you put LED lights, a green LED light, sort of every five or 10 meters along the net, it seems that the turtles will then, they can see that and they will avoid the net versus the other kinds of fish that are typically being targeted with a gill net. It doesn't seem to make any difference to the catch. That's called bycatch mitigation, finding ways that you can still use that fishing gear, but not catch so many other sharks and rays. Well, one other interesting example, prawn trawlers, which will take bottom dwelling sharks and rays. So people have found ways that you can put escape hatches into the back of these nets so the animals are still getting caught in the net, but because they behave differently from the prawn, there's a sort of grill in the back of the net that will push the larger animals upwards and then out of a flap. So the turtles and big animals like sawfishes will actually get ejected out of the net, whereas the prawns will still be caught. We have to stop sharks going extinct. And by doing so, you know, we can actually preserve the health of our oceans, which are in a terrible mess at the moment for, for all kinds of different reasons. Where it's relevant, uh, don't buy shark products, so including fin, including meat, but also watch out for uh, health supplements, for example, that contain squalene, and also try and avoid buying shark teeth when you're on your holiday somewhere tropical where they might be selling them. The vast majority of shark products are from fisheries that are neither sustainable nor are the products traceable. Andy Cornish, Global Shark and Ray Conservation Program Leader at WWF, speaking to Johnny Wood. You're listening to Radio Davos Summer Special. We'll be back after this short break to tell you how you can reforest the world by listening to music. John Pearson understands the value of simplicity and focus. He's the CEO of DHL Express, a division of the shipping and logistics giant Deutsche Post DHL Group. John's thousands of staffers deliver millions of shipments to hundreds of countries every year. He talked to Meet the Leader about this complex organization and the special trainings, strategies, and even one-liners the company uses to keep communication clear and staff aligned. Strategies that helped it navigate the pandemic. You'll only ever be known for a few things, so just focus on a few things and do them well. He'll also share how the COVID crisis has underscored for him the power of trade and what the company will be doing and prioritizing in the months ahead. Really need to be ready to eat real peak this year because it will be the mother of all peaks. I'm your host, Linda Lacina. Learn about all of this and the advice John has learned in more than three decades at the company on the next Meet the Leader. You're listening to Radio Davos, and we're listening to Don Diablo and Ty Dollar Sign with a tune called Too Much to Ask. She says she need more loving in the morning. She Dutch DJ Don Diablo teamed up with a charity called Just Dig It, which plants trees in Africa and restores land there. And every 25 times that this song is streamed on platforms like Spotify, Apple or Deezer, Just Dig It says it will restore a square metre of land. The initiative's called Stream to Green, and my colleague Katrina Gordichuk spoke to the people behind it who told her how, more than just being a fundraiser, they're trying to raise awareness of climate change and that the fact that no matter how serious that is, there can be solutions. 
My name is Don Diablo. I make music, art, fashion, think a lot about the future, and I'm working on an amazing project together with Whistle for Just Dig It. Wessel van Eden, I'm the Global Marketing and Communications Director for Just Dig It, based out of uh, the Netherlands, but uh, mostly active in Africa, restoring degraded landscapes. To date, we have restored 60,000 hectares in Kenya and Tanzania and uh, regenerated six and a half million trees in the past four years. Don and Vessel explained how Stream to Regreen works. How can listening to music help plant trees? All of the income goes directly to Just Dig It, in this case. So. My part as a writer, uh, a composer, but also the record label part. For every 25 streams, this gives us enough income to sustainably regreen. I think that's also really important to say. So it's not just a one-off intervention and we leave it. It's really part of our bigger programs whereby Jewish just to get can guarantee uh, that it will be sustainably regreen for the 20 years to come. And this song, Too Much To Ask, what's it about? It's a love song, but who's the, who's the, the recipient of that love song? In this case, that is Mother Earth. So if you then listen from that point of view, then it becomes a whole different story. So why didn't he just write a song about the trees or the charity, Just Dig It? When it feels like it's too charity, you know, like it's too, too like um, heal the world-ish, you know, you're kind of just approaching it in the wrong way. Music should live on its own and a charity should live on its own. When they can marry, they should still have their own lives. This is what music and art should be. You have to fill it in yourself. If you were to make that sort of charity record, the problem with that would be that, you know, the usual suspects who are already sort of into buying into the sustainability lifestyle and stuff like that, they would love it and they would stream it to the moon. But I think the, the, the objective of this is to reach the hearts and minds of people who are by definition not every day very much being confronted with the options and, uh, you know, the climate crisis and especially the solutions to the climate crisis. So by reaching out to people who are following Don, who are following Ty, Ty Dollar Sign, you know, they both have huge followings. I think that really opens up a lot of new people to the perspective of, you know, there is a climate crisis, which most people fortunately didn't know these days, but actually that there are also solutions and that, that you can contribute by doing what you love most. I think that just makes perfect sense. Stream to Green not only gives people an easy way to make a small difference, but, Wessel says, shows them that there are potential solutions to climate change. So what Just Dig It tries to do is to show low-tech. Eh? Nature is the most low-tech solution, the oldest force on our planet. And just to show before and after, this is what it looked like, this is what it looks like now. And you won't believe the amount of positive energy we get, especially from the young generation. It gives hope, it gives inspiration, and where hope and inspiration start living, new ideas occur, new energy starts flowing, and that's where magic can happen. And that's why it's so important to also reach out to the people who are not yet part of Extinction Rebellion or Fridays for Future. We're trying to reach out to a whole new generations of people that are willing to do something, but sometimes just not aware of how they can contribute. And if you can make it as easy as listening to music, I think that's full circle. Perhaps the Ur charity song Feed the World by Band-Aid sold two million copies, vinyl copies of a seven-inch single. That was in 1984 when music was analogue and pop stars were godlike. So how does it feel in the age of streaming? The value of music feels so deflated, so invaluated, uh, because people are streaming music now. You're not selling CDs, you're not selling vinyls, you're not even selling downloads anymore. So what is the real value of music? Sometimes it feels like that has gone lost. So by actually pointing out like, hey, this is the impact you can still have with music. You can literally regreen hundreds of thousands of square meters. For me as a musician, that also brings back the feeling that what we're doing is actually important. Don Diablo on the power of music. Before him, you heard Wessel Van Eden of Just Dig It. 
The song is called Too Much To Ask, and if you stream it, you'll help plant trees where they're needed. You can find more of our coverage of climate change and the natural world across our social media feeds on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. My thanks to this week's guests, Sharkman Andy Cornish at WWF, musician Don Diablo, and Wessel Van Eden of Just Dig It. Reporting was by Johnny Wood and Katrina Gordichuk, with technical support from Gareth Nolan. We're taking a few weeks off now, but we'll be back soon, and there are plenty of episodes to catch up on at wf.ch podcasts. In the meantime, for now, thanks to you for listening to Radio Davos, and goodbye. <laughs>